episode eight of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. I'm your host, Henry Hyde, and this is a short clip from today's main interview. I often have sat with the question about um, if, if there is a question that character strengths is an answer to, what was the question? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, and what I'm leaning to at the moment is, I, I, as I talk to people, we're, we're recording as we come out of the lockdown and mm. out of the pandemic, and I talk to a lot of people where life has become quite wearisome, or, or sometimes mm. people had a strong sense of vocation in their mm. work and what they were doing, and now it all feels they feel a bit sort of deadened and a bit yeah, numb. Yeah. And I think if character strengths does anything, it's really about how do we get you back in the room? How do we remind you of, of the best of who you are? so that you can get back into it again and do it yeah. again. So I view it as a way of really putting our life or, or our soul or ourselves back mm. into our daily lives. And that's what character strength points to within us. That was the voice of Dr. Roger Bretherton, who came on the show today to talk about some really interesting stuff about character strengths and positive psychology I really enjoyed having him on the show. Very stimulating guest with some very interesting stuff to say. That's coming up later in the show. Now, I like to ring the changes in these introductions, as you know. And I'm uh, going to talk about something today uh, that was actually stimulated by a tweet from one of our previous guests, Dan Holloway, who's quite active on Twitter always has lots of interesting things to say. And uh, uh, he was uh, talking about uh, having the fact that you need to be very careful when you read self-help books and listen to self-help gurus and that kind of thing. Now, uh, this is um, something that I've wanted to raise in the show for quite some time because... Um, part of the uh, the kind of title of the show is that I'm going to be dealing with kind of self-help as one of the things <clears throat> that we're going to be looking at. Um, and of course, the fact is that the self-help market is vast. You only just have to go to Amazon and type in self-help and you are confronted with, well, I can't imagine how many thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of titles on the subject of self-help. And they range from the really very good, uh, and I've uh, listed and mentioned some of those in this show, things like uh, Self-Compassion by Kristin Neff or Resilient by Rick Hansen, just a couple there. But there's also an awful lot of dross out there. And uh, you have to be careful uh, when you read a self-help book uh, you may be in a state of unease, maybe even desperation, trying to solve some problems in your life, trying to overcome relationship problems. Maybe you've got financial worries. Maybe you've got family troubles. Maybe you're worried about, you know, coping with illness or whatever. Uh, and it's very easy to get sidelined. And sometimes the books that are the best sellers aren't actually necessarily the best books. They're often just the books that have been written by the most famous author. Sometimes, dare I say it, 
TV celebrities, people of that kind, uh, who uh, have tapped into the self-help market because they've realised that there's a lot of money to be made there. Or, you know, let's be fair, they might be doing it with the best will in the world. But um, let's have a look at why you must be really careful when you're reading a self-help book and thinking of taking the advice contained therein. Now, the main problem with self-help books is, generally speaking, and I'm struggling to think of, of books that aren't written under these circumstances, they tend to be written by successful people who then want to pass on their wisdom and their genius, perhaps, uh, their advice about how they became successful. The idea being, well, if you just do what they did, well, you can't fail, really, can you? Now, clearly, that's not true, is it? <laughs> Otherwise, uh, shall we say, I think it's fair to say, wealth would be more evenly distributed in this world because there's an awful lot of poor people, unsuccessful people, unhappy people who read stacks of self-help books but have seen no improvement in their life. Now, that kind of makes me a bit cross actually um, and it's one of the things about the self-help industry that, uh, you know, it's, it's not a regulated industry um, and anyone can sit down and write a self-help book aimed at the masses and potentially make quite a lot of money from it. And of course there are self-help tapes, self-help videos, DVDs, websites, you know, take your pick. What's the criticism then of self-help books? Well, um, there's, it's, it'd be easy, as I say, to point out that for every one person who reads a self-help book and that helps them to be successful. There may be many, many more people who read exactly the same book, try to apply exactly the same advice and get nowhere. Because the person who writes the book or creates that course or whatever may be completely genuine in wanting to pass on good advice. But they don't realise that what they're suffering from themselves actually is what could be called confirmation bias or survivorship bias. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what that means is someone who's very successful um, may be doing this. I'm just going to give you the Wikipedia definition of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, also known as my side bias, is the tendency to search for, interpret, favour and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. People display this bias when they select information that supports their views, ignoring contrary information, or when they interpret ambiguous evidence as supporting their existing attitudes. The effect is strongest for desired outcomes, for emotionally charged issues and for deeply entrenched beliefs. Confirmation bias cannot be eliminated entirely, but it can be managed, for example, by education and training in critical thinking skills. Now, what that means is that, say someone has managed to make a lot of money, okay? 
that's great. I'm happy for them. You know, I don't, I don't believe in being jealous or envious of people who've managed to make lots of money. But what they tend to do is to look back and think, oh, gosh, so how come I managed to make a lot of money? What advice can I give people to say, oh, yes, well, if you just do this, this and this, you'll make a lot of money, too. Well, uh, when we read self-help books of this time written by people who, if you like, scaled the summit in that way, got to the top, uh, it's easy to for that author to fill the book with very specific things that worked for them, but ignore all the things that weren't as obvious, even failures that they encountered along the way. But And those things could have been actually just as int- instrumental in their success as the things that worked. And... It's just a fact that for every successful person who followed those hypothetical steps set out in that self-help book, you know, that's step one, step two, step three, there are probably hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who followed those steps but failed. One of the examples I like to give is, well, think of, say, the... Olympic 100 metres final. Okay, in uh, recent years, there's been someone like Usain Bolt, who's just an extraordinary individual. Um, And it could well be that many of the other finalists thought to themselves, there's no way I'm going to win this. (laughs) But under normal circumstances, people who train regularly and reach kind of international standard in athletics and go through the qualification rounds, by the time they get to the final, they all feel that they've got an equal chance of winning. I've done the training. I'm just as good as anyone else here, so I can win. Now, how many people are usually in the final? Eight, ten, twelve? Those men and women are extraordinary athletes and have obviously scored many victories themselves in order to get to that position. The starting gun goes, off they go, and something like 10 seconds later, one person has won that final. The rest of them are losers. That's how we tend to look at these things. And what often happens is that the public, the press... And actually, the winner themselves start to look for the special source that got them to that top spot, that won them the gold medal. Now, that's great. And of course, it makes great reading for biographies, makes great TV programs as the winner is celebrated and the other runners kind of fade into the distance they're forgotten almost instantly you know within okay they might be lauded as oh yes silver medalist and the bronze medalist and you got they stand on the podium and they get their medals but after that the press are only interested in the winner aren't they they're only interested in the man or woman with that gold medal around their neck 
and they start so wow so this is an amazing so what do you think it is that got you that gold medal and it's almost at that instant that this kind of confirmation bias or what you could also call survivorship bias begins oh yeah because i wore those particular training shoes because i uh, ate a donut every thursday afternoon at four o'clock because you know dream up whatever you like it could be a business and you know someone like an elon musk or a bill gates or whoever who's made it to the kind of billionaire status so why do you think it is bill that or steve jobs that have why do you think it is that you've made it to this kind of billionaire status and in their own heads they start to believe that oh yes it's because let's look at steve jobs oh it's because i wore a black turtleneck sweater to work every single day that became my talisman and that's what's kind of responsible for my success you know i mean obviously there are other things much more serious business things and marketing things that you know in reality he'd probably probably answer but you kind of get the idea and of course someone else might think gosh well if only i wear a black turtleneck to work every day i'm going to be a billionaire uh no, not necessarily. Um, so whilst people will come up with these things that they say, well, it's because of this or because of that that I'm this successful, the fact is that correlation does not equal causation. All right? Google that. That's a big thing in itself. But correlation does not equal causation. So whilst the author of the self-help book or the business guru or whatever, uh, might credit the action they took, let's call it X, with result Y, just because that's what they think uh, the causation is, in fact, it might be something completely different that they haven't thought of. Okay? And often many of these self-help books are full of kind of anecdotal advice. Uh, they're cherry-picking case studies from their own life. Uh, they may be writing and, and get carried away with, oh, this is great prose I'm writing here, but actually they start including narrative fallacies. Also, it's entirely possible that the circumstances under which they became successful are completely non-reproducible. Could it be that actually they've come from a privileged background? They might not recognise that they're privileged, but in fact they are privileged. And this is something that you know can easily get tied up with kind of the racism deb debate because you know, uh, let's say a handsome white guy from Harvard <laughs> is going to find it. A lot easier to be successful than a black guy from, you know, the 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 the, the suburbs of of L.A. Okay, and like you know, there are obviously many British examples one could give as well. So, the circumstances of person A may be entirely non-reproducible. They just happen to have the stars aligned in the right way and. That's why they're successful. They've managed to be successful. They've been in the right place at the right time with the right education, the just the right amount of money to invest and so on and so forth. 
And you're never going to be in that position. Okay? And the other thing, of course, is luck. Right? As I talk about the Olympic finalists, you know, that everyone can do exactly the same thing. And the only difference is that the winner has a stroke of luck. I mean, it can even be, and I've seen it happen in a race, that just before the finishing line, they kind of almost trip over their own laces, and that literally helps them to win by a nose. All right? So, and you, I'm sure you can think of all kinds of circumstances where, you you know, in sports it happens all the time. In, in sports, often it's more it's more easily acknowledged that, wow, yeah, they had a real stroke of luck there. That golfer, that little gust of wind enabled him to get a hole in one. If that little gust of wind hadn't come along just at that moment, it might have been a difficult putt, right? So be aware that the best way to deal with self-help advice is not to take the word of a single author. Don't just pick up one popular self-help book and think that that self-help book is going to contain all the answers that you need to give yourself a happier, brighter, wealthier life. As with all things, in all forms of study, read widely. Read books that contradict one another. Read authors who, you know, fairly publicly loathe one another. So author A says this, author B says that. Mm, weigh up the options. What do you think? Even better, go ahead and read authors C, D, E and F as well. See what kind of, if you like, aggregate advice you get about achieving something. And a lot of it comes down to work hard, do your best, uh, commit to what you're doing, do it with a passion. And if you're able to gain enjoyment and fulfilment from what you're doing, and if along the way you manage to get success in by whatever measure you, you think of success, that's a bonus. That's a bonus. You know, there is lots of good advice about that, about how to dig yourself out of uh, being in a debt hole, that kind of stuff. I've been there. The answer is, do you know what? It's a long, hard slog. And so actually, books like Rick Hansen's Resilience are often at least as useful as someone who says, yeah, oh, yeah, I can show you how to make a million bucks overnight. Because if it was really that easy to make a million bucks overnight, eh, there'd be an awful lot more millionaires in this world. So uh, thanks to Do Dan Holloway for kind of provoking these thoughts of mine. And and I hope that uh, you kind of uh, appreciate this kind of warning, uh, this balloon I've put up about certain health self-help books that promise a great deal but you may find actually deliver not very much at all. And in fact, uh, if you just uh, Google a phrase like 
the problem with self-help books or the danger of self-help books. There's quite a lot of very good cogent critique out there uh, along the lines of exactly what I've been saying here. Now, uh, before I kind of end my introduction, I just wanted to say something about what I'm probably going to be talking about next time, because I have some amazing conversations with my friends Ava and Suze. And one of the conversations that I had last night, in fact, uh, was uh, very exciting because we kind of stumbled on a link between uh, mindfulness, uh, attachment theory and transactional analysis. And uh, you may go, cool, blimey, Governor, what's all that about? Well, th the point is that all those things are, you know, they've they're very powerful systems that can be used for all kinds of stuff. But uh, monitoring and uh, moderating one's own emotional response to stuff is where they can be really useful. And in the course of my conversation with Ava last night, I uh, we stumbled upon the fact that, oh, there's an interesting kind of connection there, an interesting kind of parallel going on. So that's just kind of a little bit of a teaser about what I'm going to talk about next episode, episode nine. Uh, but for the moment, I'm going to hand you over to the main interview with Dr. Roger Bretherton. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Amazon or Spotify. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head, where you can make donations in multiples of just three pounds, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you. Episode 8. Today I'm really thrilled to be talking to this chap. He was actually introduced to me by a really good friend of mine and he is a man who's had a really interesting journey in the world of psych teaching psychology and learning psychology and uh, I'm really thrilled to have him on because he's got some fascinating stuff to talk to us about today. Fascinating enough to make me go online and do a questionnaire which was like gosh quite interesting and i'll put the link to that questionnaire in the show notes folks because i think you're all going to go oh that sounded interesting and go and find out about this stuff too i'm talking to none other than dr roger bretherton hello there roger hello henry lovely to be with you today thanks ever so much for coming on the show all the way from darkest lincolnshire uh down <laughs> talking to me down here in hove uh where we've got some sunshine today i'm pleased to report so oh, i'm uh, very jealous 
Now, Roger, uh, as I said, you've been on quite an interesting journey. Before we get into the real meat of the show, could you uh, give people just a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from originally, a bit about your life, early education and uh, the career you've had to date? Because I know that where you are now is not where you started. Yeah, that that's a great question. Thank you, Henry. So, yeah, so I, so I was sort of raised, I, I, I was raised in a family that sort of moved around the UK quite a bit. So I started off um, in Merseyside. We then moved to Manchester. We then went down south to Dorset. We then, I then went to university in Hull and eventually settled where I am now in Lincoln. So even though I arrived in Lincoln in my sort of early 20s, this is now the place I've lived longest in my entire life. So I say I come from Lincoln, really. That, That is the kind of thing. Yeah. And when I when I first around about the age of 16 was beginning to think about what will I do with my life? What could I um, contribute? Um, I I was going around careers fairs and university open days looking at three things. I I didn't know if I wanted to be um, a vicar, an actor or a psychologist. (laughs) And uh, I, I think it was really my parents who persuaded me that I might actually have a career in psychology, whereas the other two were a little bit more, more right. likely to pay the way. Um, right. um, but interestingly, all three of those came from the same place. They came from kind of quite a strong interest in people in me. So what makes yeah. people tick and what is life about and how do we live well? Um, and um, I, I think like a lot of teenagers asking those kind of questions around identity and who am I and what, what does it mean to mm. be in the world? Um, I, and so really for me, kind of theatre and theology and psychology, we're all sort of trying to answer the same question, really. Right. So so what happened um, was I, I went and trained in clinical psychology. So I ended up yeah. um, doing a very intense quite brutal training course actually um so it's a six-year course 250 people applied I think 15 got on and I think seven of us made it all the way through so it's kind of like people dropping out with wow all kinds of stress and burnout and all kinds of things going on so and I got through it not because I was really the cleverest or the most able person on the course it was just whoever could just plod along yeah get the work done kind of came out the other side um a good measure of grit by the sound of it. It, it, was, yeah. it sounds a bit like SAS, are you tough enough kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, clinical psychology does have that reputation. So it's a reputation of being yeah. very competitive and difficult to get into and, and a real test in terms of the actual training itself. Mm. Um, but, but my interest in clinical psychology, by the time I'd got to the end of those six years, I was really established in my interest in trauma, really. So I right. went into a service that worked particularly with people who all kinds of horrible things had happened to them. Oh, really? um, contracts with the military, contracts with people who'd been through sort of um, abuse and, and things like that. Um, and my actual doctorate, and this is how I ended up in Lincoln, my doctorate was on road traffic accidents and the trauma oh that they caused to people. Um, wow. And um, I, I was trying to myth bust as part of my uh, research because I'd been told during my training that that if someone had been through a road traffic accident mm. and they were suffering anxiety or depression or post traumatic stress or something like that mm. that you mm. shouldn't treat them until their court case was settled because the the suspicion was they will perseverate and they'll malinger yeah. with their symptoms because they don't want to get better until they've got their settlement 
And that sounded a bit strange to me as a piece of advice. Um, And so I did a piece of research where I looked at, basically followed up people who'd been assessed for a court case by a psychologist. And I was Mm -hmm. then reassessing them somewhere between seven and 15 years later, depending on when they'd first been assessed. Mm. And pretty decisively, what my research showed was it it basically said it didn't matter whether you'd got your compensation money or not. People who'd had therapy, generally speaking, were doing better on measures of trauma, depression, anxiety, and people who hadn't. Um, And so it's a nice piece of research to do in the sense that it had quite a humanitarian claim. It's saying, actually, you know what? If people are ready to change, their court case isn't going to get in the way. In fact, the yeah. only thing the court case is going to do is probably mean that they're more stressed than they would yeah. be if they were. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Um, you mentioned you've uh, you looked into stuff with the military. I, I've been supporting a charity called Combat Stress for yeah. a long time and raising mm-hmm. money for them. And I've met veterans over the years. And there's another bit of my life where I get involved with a lot of kind of military history and, you know, wargaming stuff and meet a lot of military guys. Uh, And that's really interesting, the post-traumatic stress disorder, which, of course, because of our level of activity in recent decades as, you know, the the country that claims not to still be a colonial power but keeps getting involved in colonial wars. Um, There's an awful lot of our uh, men and women dating back decades who are still sadly very much in need of treatment and because of what's happened in afghanistan recently of course that's really come to the fore where there's a lot of people stuff has resurfaced because of the way in which suddenly the exit of from afghanistan has been handled Mm. so it's really interesting that you've kind of been involved in that kind of trauma therapy and that kind of stuff now you kind of moved on from there and we're going to we'll come back later and talk a bit more about your journey as it were but now i think the thing that we'll spend most of the show talking about is you you're involved with something called character strengths and uh so could you give us a bit of just of a brief overview of what's meant by that because on the one hand it sounds well it's obvious what it means but on the other hand it's like Oh, no. What does it mean? So can you give us a bit of an explanation about that, Roger? Well, well, I I think it's good that you asked the question, Henry, because I this is an area that I I absorb my life in it. Really, I spend my whole time Mm. studying this thing called character strengths and I get very excited about it. And sometimes it doesn't land. And then I realize it's because nobody knows what the flip character strengths are. (laughs) These are brilliant and they they don't know what it is. so may, maybe if I just give a little bit of a history about how yeah. the model that I'm working with came about, and that just helps explain um, a, a little bit um, of it. Um, so some of your listeners will probably be aware of the field of positive psychology, which is really the study of what's right with us. You know, when we're doing well, what are the things that we do that do really well? But what most people don't seem to know is right at the very, very beginning of the positive psychology movement. So mm. Martin Seligman, back in the sort of late 90s, um of the previous century previous millennium it is sort of proposing so far psychology has a really good understanding of what's wrong with us we've been really really clear about that and that's important and it's necessary and in a sense where we're meeting people at their point of need by understanding those things mm-hmm. but but in the at the turn of the millennium they i think at that point for every one article that had been published on something good so for every 
scientific paper that covered gratitude, compassion, wisdom, mm. etc. There were 28 that had been published on something <laughs> negative. So um, yeah, yeah. stress, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, etc. So so all, all that kind of world that I worked in mm. as, a, as a clinical psychologist. And Martin Seligman said, well, basically, it's time for psychology just to even things up a little bit. We need mm. to have an understanding of things that are good, that's every bit as scientific, every bit as rich, um, every bit as compelling, um, that, that has good sort of lots of good scientists working in it. So we have to have an mm. understanding of the good side of life that's every bit as thorough as our understanding of, you know, maybe mm. the negative and the problem side of mm. things has been. And so the, the way that project, so the first project they did in positive psychology, and it still is the center of positive psychology, really, mm. um, was Martin Seligman and some of his colleagues pulling together what he says were 55 of the world's leading psychologists at that point yeah. in time. Um, no, he didn't invite me, and it still hurts <laughs> to this day. Um, well, I, I was too young, actually, in those days anyway. Um, but basically what they did, they pulled together um, some world experts and they, they effectively came up with a list of what they called character strengths, which were kind of the, the opposite of some of the diagnostic manuals of psychiatric complaints mm. we would have. Mm. So, um, mm. I mean, it's a long story about all the criteria they used to come up with them, but, but effectively they ended up with 24 character strengths uh, which mm. cover all all kinds of things from intellectual strengths like wisdom and good judgment mm. and curiosity and creativity strengths that might be associated with courage like passion perseverance bravery mm. um strengths that might be um associated with good relationships like love and kindness and social mm. intelligence similarly with things like justice so fairness um leadership citizenship mm. loyalty um, strengths that might be associated with with self-regulation or self-possession, mm. like uh, yeah, self-control or humility or forgiveness, um, prudence, and then strengths that they, they sort of nebulously clustered together under what they call transcendence, which is basically right. strengths that, that really connect us to, to the wider world, to a bigger mm. meaning. And um, that includes, yes, things like uh, spirituality and wonder, which I think mm. are fairly obvious, it includes mm. um, gratitude and hope, but it also includes humor as well. So this sense right. of laughter and the ability to to view the world in a humorous way it also has this sort of transcendent quality to it yeah. as well. Um, so so that, that's the sort of outline of what they were, and that's how it, it came about. Um, I, and then the, the questionnaire, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment, that you completed mm. is the Via Inventory of Strengths then came mm. out of that. And this right. is a, a self-report measure that's now been, and, well, every time I say how many people have completed it, I'm always wrong because every 15 seconds, a new person completes it. But um, All right. last time I looked, I think it had been completed by about 5 million people wow. in every country in the world. It's been translated into uh, 30 different languages and actually more than that, but they're not necessarily validated versions. Mm. We yeah. actually in Lincoln, one of my PhD students actually did the Arabic translation of it. So she was wow. the person who produced that. So we've we've sort of been involved in pushing it into um, the Gulf states and the, the Muslim world, particularly. That's oh, been wow. one of our contributions to the field. Um, but yeah, it's a really, really fascinating, life affirming, interesting field. And mm. and I guess that just to finish off, just to round it off, I, I often have sat with the question about um if if there is a question that character strengths is an answer to, what what <laughs> question? Um, yeah, 
I, and what I'm leaning to at the moment is, I, I as I talk to people, we're, we're recording as we come out of the lockdown and mm. out of the pandemic, and I talk to a lot of people where life has become quite wearisome, or, or sometimes mm. people had a strong sense of vocation in their mm. work and what they were doing, and now it all feels, they feel a bit sort of deadened and a bit yeah, numb. Yeah. And I think if character strengths does anything, it's really about how do we get you back in the room? How do we remind you of, of the best of who you are so that you can get back into it again and do it yeah. again. So I view it as a way of really putting our life or, or our soul or ourselves back mm. into our daily lives. And that's what character strengths points to within us. Well, that's a really nice summing up, actually. I, I, I kind of like that. Um, and uh, I think, we well, we're going to talk a little bit later about the way some of the key ways and places where this kind of stuff can be applied, usefully applied. Um, I Let's talk about the questionnaire, because I did the questionnaire. In fact, I did it twice just to make sure that there wasn't some kind of hocus pocus going on. You know? And as I went through it the second time, inevitably, I thought, oh, I adjusted, adjusted this answer or that answer or on reflection. But it was really, really interesting. It didn't take long to do. Folks, if you're going to give it a go, what, five or ten minutes and the night really didn't take very long at all. You can, if you want, yes, donate money and buy a fully pumped up you know highly detailed version of of a report to you know about yourself or whatever uh, i just went for the free version and that frankly was you know was fascinating enough for me um and um i'm gonna tell people what my top 10 results were yeah, i'm not gonna go through all 24 yeah. you know although it was interesting which one came last which i might mention because that's <laughs> that's not a surprise but i i, I got um my top 10 were honesty kindness this sounds like i'm bragging or something but i'm not this honestly was the list that came out <laughs> honesty kindness love creativity fairness curiosity bravery appreciation of beauty and excellence social intelligence and love of learning and i actually thought blimey that's pretty accurate actually when i think about what other people say about me and what i think about myself that's pretty much you know how i would like to be seen mm. so the questions are very cleverly devised that kind of bring out that i will tell you the thing that came bottom on my list was teamwork but here i am a solo self-employed person so that's not necessarily surprising <laughs> is it i used to be a team guy you know at school rugby and all that kind of stuff you know and i was captain of this and captain of that but i think i've just been self-employed for so long now that it doesn't surprise me in the slightest teamwork came down the bottom of my list <laughs> Now, I th that's really interesting because when you get those answers, they also, also tell you what kind of category they're put in. So honesty comes under courage, kindness comes under humanity, love comes under humanity, creativity comes under wisdom. And as a professional graphic designer, as well as doing this kind of stuff, I'd hope creativity would be up there. Fairness comes under justice, curiosity comes under wisdom, bravery and courage. Yeah, I nearly joined the army a long time ago, so I need to be fairly courageous, I think. Uh, appreciation of beauty and excellence, social intelligence. So that's transcendence. That's one of the mm -hmm. things you were talking about. Social intelligence comes under humanity and love of learning comes under wisdom. So there's an interesting kind of cluster of characteristics there that I would say I'm quite impressed the way that that all kind of adds up and makes sense. So um, can you say something about the significance a bit more about the significance of some of these categories and 
in your opinion, as a you know someone who's been in psychology for a long time now, how accurate a reflection of personality do you think they actually mm. are? Yeah, yeah, and and um, I, I mean that that's actually quite it's a much bigger question perhaps than than it appears to be mm. um, at first glance. Um, so I, I guess the first thing to say is what I like about the field of character strengths and virtues is that, that there's sort of two ways of thinking about it, really. I mean, there's many ways, but there's two ways that I tend to use the most. Mm. What One of them might be to think about character strengths and virtues as a whole. So mm. you, you do the questionnaire. It measures all 24 of them. And then and then exactly as you're doing, probably the best thing to pay attention to is what comes towards the top. So it's usually mm. your top let's say four to seven strengths mm. tend to be fairly consistent through our lifetime. So, so um, they might move about a little bit. You're absolutely right in picking up the idea that, you know, in, in the days when perhaps you did more teamwork, teamwork might've been higher up that mm. list. The, the other thing to keep in mind is when you have them all like that, they're ranked, uh, you know, relatively mm. to one another. So it could actually be that your teamwork is quite high, but it's just that other things are higher as well. So yeah, yeah. they're ranked relative to one another. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that basically means when you have 24 items like that and you're ranking them, it means there's more possible combinations of result than there are people on the planet, basically. Yeah, so yeah. it really is unique to you. Yeah. Um, I, and um, one of the things I like about looking at in the round like that is that it allows you to see um, all the different elements you could bring to it. So, so that the sort yeah. of the, the most famous intervention using that questionnaire is really to identify your signature strengths, those ones that are up at the top, yeah. and really ask yourself every day, how could I use this one today? So for me, mm. um, I have love of learning at the top, spirituality is in there, creativity is there, um, there's some kindness in there as well. Mm. And I know on a day when I sort of use those things, sometimes inadvertently you just end up using yeah, yeah. it. I know I come out of the day feeling much happier, like I've been in yeah. the day that day. And if yeah. I have a day when they're not welcome, or um, I've been in meetings where there's no space for fun or creativity or mm. any of those things. I know that a part of me feels really dissatisfied with them for yeah, yeah, yeah. that day. Um, yeah. And so looking at them in that way is a really, really helpful way to begin asking the question, um, how can I bring the best of who I am to today? And if you go on the website you've been on, which yeah. I'm sure we'll, we'll put in the information attached to this, um, you you can see that they they have a list of all kinds of different activities you could use to use your creativity or your love yeah. of learning or um, your honesty in, in different mm. ways every day. And yeah. that that exercise is very, very highly related to improvements in positive moods. So mm. um, when you look at, at meta-analyses that have been done of um, many, many different studies on that, it, it, it reliably what you see comes out is that people who know how to use what's best in them in a new way every day like they think yeah. curiously each day how should i do this um yeah. it's like intentionally bringing your best that those people um show increases in well-being um mm. not just a week later but a month later and three months later and six months mm. later um in contrast to people who just do the questionnaire and do nothing with it so <laughs> yeah. if, you know if, if i tell you what's good in you today i go your honesty is wonderful henry here's where i see it now that will that will actually give you a, a boost in emotional well-being for about a week, um, mm. but it won't last much beyond that. Um, mm. And so we call that an inert intervention in psychology. Right. It gives you a nice burst, but that's it; it's gone. Yeah, yeah. Whereas to really benefit from it, you have to think: yes, that is something good in it, in me. I'll mm. own that, and I'll use it in some way this coming mm. week. 
so so that I, just to to complete what I said at the beginning, that that's the kind of first way of using it. Really, is this mm. kind of let's look at you in a round and let's see mm. what's top and let's go with that. But then the other way of using character strengths is that every character strength, this is what makes it really interesting as a questionnaire, is that every single character strength on that list in itself is a whole world of research. Yeah. Um, so you just have to take take love of learning or you take wisdom or you take courage, mm. take any one of them. And people have taken a whole career in psychology <laughs> just yeah. looking at that. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's the definition of biting off more than I can chew in terms of wanting to study all of it. Yeah. Um, but that's the other way of thinking about it. You could pick up what, like, you could pick up your honesty and just study how does making sure that I behave in a, a self-consistent way on a day-to-day -day basis, how does that mm. lead to my well-being over time? And there's mm. loads of studies just on that. Um, mm. And so that's one of the things that's really nice about it is that you can look at it as a round and you can take bits and pieces and use them generally. Or you could take it, all those individual strengths. So even if you took your bottom strength and you thought, I'd like to up my teamwork, there's all kinds of studies done mm. on how you would do that, how you would invest in it, what that would mean to you. Mm. Um, and so you can take strengths as a whole, or you can take one of those individual 24 strengths and, and use that just mm. in and of itself. I think what I found, uh, I'm just looking at, looking at the one at the top of this, honesty, speaking the truth, uh and presenting myself in a genuine way uh, and so on and so forth i wow that's why i'm doing this job mm. that's why i love podcasting because i and and because the kind of person i am um and it also ties in with you know uh, something that was in there like bravery like speaking my mind whether it's popular or not um in recent years this is this is wow this is just um ties in with who i believe myself to be mm. i was brought up to be honorable you know that's very some people think it's terribly old-fashioned these days especially with politics the way it is right but i was brought up to be have if you like the knightly virtues of which you know honesty is you know kind of the top of the list and it's it is just how i approach things mm. so it's really interesting that the questionnaire picked up on that and particularly when you decide to <laughs> be a mug and step out into the limelight, you know, and do something like a podcast. So I know you, you're you on tour a lot. You're doing shows and goodness knows what, Roger. is really impressive. Uh, but you have to have a kind of integrity in order to do that, don't mm. you? Because yeah. otherwise someone's going to ask you an awkward question and you go, oh, shit, been found out there. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, and something I did a couple of years ago, I, I had uh, prostate cancer and I decided to take that experience and do some videos on youtube just as you know if i'm going through this i don't want it to be wasted i want it to be of value not just to myself but yeah for other people you know yes. if if i'm learning this stuff as i go along i want to share that and that's what this show's about as well as like i'm getting this opportunity to talk to amazing people like you and i want to share that you know with the rest of the world so i think that that's the way that ties in is really interesting uh something that didn't come very high on my list but i know it'd be high on your list is spirituality mm. i was surprised actually my that spirituality didn't come higher on my list but i'm but i probably complicate things because i'm an atheist who's discovering a kind of spirituality through meditation and other yeah. stuff 
Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I had a conversation in the last show with a lovely guy called Michael Peterson, who's actually a vicar, a Canadian vicar, was an ex-army padre chaplain. And he said at one point, yeah, I think actually, whilst our beliefs are different, Henry, I think you and I aren't that far apart on quite yeah. a number of things. Yeah. And so it was interesting that simply because of the... I think because of the questions that weren't there on the questionnaire, it yeah. didn't pick up on that kind of nuance. Yeah. And I think that's always, that's always one of the things about questionnaires, though, isn't it? You know, when you're doing kind of either quantitative, put my teeth in, quantitative or qualitative research and questionnaires and that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's like the questions you don't ask or haven't asked that can leave you thinking, yeah. oh, yeah, there's a gap there. Well, it's I mean, it's really interesting because what you're picking up there, Henry, is some of the debate that's gone on behind the spirituality items, actually. So Ryan right. Nemick, who's the education director of VIA, who's a very good friend of mine. So he, he's been very involved in sculpting those questions. And he is, um, I, I don't think he's no particular religion, but he would view himself as a spiritual person. And he, yeah. like you, has sort of been asking a lot of those kind of questions around, should we replace this with the word purpose? But then spirituality seems to capture something really yeah. important that's a bit more than purpose. So, so yeah, exactly the kind of dilemmas you're talking about. He's he's been wrestling with as well. And, and I probably should say that I would never recommend that anyone ever does one questionnaire and then says that's me. I think you also. Yeah. I mean, I heard it in what you said. So you have to do some reflection yourself. Does that fit yeah. with who I know myself to be? Yeah. And then the the sort of the sort of other rating element of it as mm -hmm. well what do other people say that I am is, is also a really mm. important element of it too. Um, and so you're absolutely right for you to sort of interpret your questionnaire in the round of your own self-reflection and also your relationships with others and what comes up in those. Yeah, sure. Cause you know, you get your set of answers and no one should just see, look at the answers and go, Oh, well, that's me then. <laughs> right. I'm, I, for a start, this is a snapshot in time. Of course, that's the first yeah. thing it was, it was at whatever time it was late last night that I thought, oh, I better do the questionnaire before talking to it. Uh, but it, I, I think what was astounding was that even though it was, it was, I was, did it off the cuff like that. I was like, Oh, that's almost disturbingly accurate, you know, in some ways. Because you know? I think we all feel, don't we, that uh, when someone's kind of really nailed us, it's a little bit unsettling. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Well, it's it, the, the other response some people have to it is that they're disappointed by it in terms of it. It just seems right. so blindingly obvious. So, so when I first did it, I think first time I did it was sort of early, like 2012, 2013, maybe that yeah. period of time. And... Um, I, the results I got back was love of learning was my top one and bravery was my bottom. And I just thought, damn it, I knew it. I'm a coward who loves to read. It's just, <laughs> I knew that. I knew that about myself. So, uh, <laughs> how funny. I find that I'm funny. I've just been reading a book by Darren Brown, who I think might characterize himself like that. that yeah. He's, you know, he's a, he's an amazing brain, but physically not remotely courageous. But yes. anyway, I think he is in some ways, but never mind. Now, let's move on a bit because we could talk about the questionnaire all day. Folks, go and do the questionnaire. The link is going to be in the show notes. But here's the thing, you know, so what's interesting is that whilst I looked at it in terms of, oh, you know, as a kind of a personality check, if you like, and then I kind of reflected on, oh, that's interesting because what I do for a living tends to reflect those values yeah. quite closely. Interesting stuff. And of course, the fact is that you found an application for this stuff 
very much in the commercial world, in businesses, in industry, in the workplace. Tell us about that then, Roger, because that's, you know, that's uh, stepping outside the purely kind of academic cerebral yeah. landscape of the university and moving into, dare I call it, real world, you know, application in business, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So talk, talk to us about that there, Roger. Well, it, I mean, it's funny you call it the real world, because I, I sometimes feel like that. There's a famous sociologist who once said that academics view the world the way business leaders do at 2 p.m. just after lunch on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 what happens when you take this kind of psychology, you know, in the last year, I've, you know, even under lockdown online, I've been taking it into international banks and energy companies yeah. and large organizations and all kinds of places. These are really sort of gnarly executives. They're going to yeah. let you know about it if it doesn't work for them. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess the way I frame that element of things, similarly to what I was saying about character strengths, putting life into is, is that I, I have quite a desire to humanize the workplace for a lot of people. Right. I think quite often our, we mistake the sort of flow diagrams of our workplaces by which power is supposed to move. That's the real thing. That's how it really is. But we all know when you're in a large organization, it doesn't work like that at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one of my favorite pieces of research was done by a guy called Kim Cameron, who's famous for something called positive organizational scholarship and he he did this piece of research where he asked people in the workplace um to to list all the people they'd had contact with um within a period of time and then rate them all on an energy scale plus seven to negative seven did they oh, give yeah. you energy or did they take energy away from you uh, on that kind of scale and, and then what he does is he puts this into a, a piece of software that puts together the whole social network and what happens is in that network, the leaders pop out like you wouldn't believe. The leaders are the people who are pumping energy into the system because everybody who meets with them feels inspired, wants to do a better job, mm. feels like life is a bit more meaningful. Mm. And this is where character strength really starts to fit in because those people who say, I've got something good to contribute and I want to bring it to the workplace in some way, we just know that that leads to increases in positive emotion and that mm. positive emotion ripples through social systems. So, um, mm. You know, if, if you're an energetic person that I've enjoyed spending time with, not only will I go away energized and feeling better, mm. but the next person I meet will also get a bit of that. And the next mm. person they meet may even get a bit of that. So it's this mm. idea of it can ripple through a social system in that yeah. way. And then when you have a large social system that has that kind of positive energy going on in it. When you look at the longitudinal meta-analysis done on it in terms of what that leads to, mm. it's really astonishing in terms of sick mm. days go down, length of absences um, mm. decreases, people volunteer more, there's more innovation, the amount mm. of money in the system, believe it or not, goes up, um, and on and on, and on, all these kind of benefits that seem to come from having positive energy. So. So, so in a sense, I sometimes find when I walk into a commercial context, um, I'll tell you a funny story about this in a moment. I, I, I initially will will get a bit of sneering. Do we really want to hear all this peace and love crap? Is that really what we're into? <laughs> yeah. But usually I find within about five or 10 minutes of me talking, people are starting to listen and being, oh, this mm -hmm. could actually work. So one of the character strengths I did quite a lot of research on was humility. So it's really interesting how humility makes leaders better. And it does. There's really, really good evidence for it. Um, mm. But what I found was that when I put my humble leadership course together and tried to sell it commercially, absolutely nobody wanted it. Um, really? And so I had to change the name. So I changed it to Courageous Humility. 
And then I go in and speak to these executives like, yeah, we all need to be courageous. We need bravery. We need a bit of that. And I'm like, yep, courage will uh, do things. It will help you compete. It will help you, you know, initiate and do things. But if you want to be sustainable and mm. if you want people to actually enjoy working for you and if you want to actually build a culture of trust and loyalty within your organization, mm. you should really think about some humility. And I, I talk about that. Mm. So it's like I got in the door with courage and then it allowed me to talk about. Humility. Fantastic. Because <laughs> I was this is this is a really key thing. And I was going to ask you about which is. Um, the, if you like the the capitalist tradition has been well you've got the bosses at the top uh and the workers at the bottom who better do as they're told or else mm -hmm. and all power flows from the bosses at the top to the minions at the bottom uh their job satisfaction isn't really of interest to anyone unless they kick up a fuss you know god forbid they should organize a union or something yeah. like that that's kind of been the traditional model but obviously now here we are in the 20 first century and we're facing uh problems at the level of potential global catastrophe in yeah. all kinds of areas that i don't need to go in specifically because we all know what they are you know hello greta you know and uh i think this is really interesting because i can see what you represent what this this if you like movement in psychology represents is something that it not just necessary it's desperately overdue really because it's a, it offers potentially new solutions to old problems but it does mean dismantling old ways of thinking so i i wanted to ask you some more about the, the kind of resistance you have potentially mm. met along the way because i can't believe that it's all been a smooth ride as you say you know that you meet some gnarly old characters along the way who think they know it all and it doesn't and, and what i've known from my life work experiences it doesn't really matter what size the organization is it could be a small family-run business or it could be ici or some vast corporation amazon something like that and there, but there are also inspiring models already that, you know, when I think of Apple under Steve Jobs, for example, when I think of Pixar, you know, the, the, the animating company, uh, some organizations like that where, you know, when you, you become aware that there are these inspiring people who almost have an aura about them and everyone who encounters them goes away buzzing. And that, of course, makes so much more difference than someone just saying, oh, we'll do this and I'll pay you some overtime. Yeah, right. Yeah. The job satisfaction. This is why I became self-employed, because I got fed up working for people who gave me no job satisfaction whatsoever. Yeah. The only common denominator I saw was, well, you know, OK, he was different from him and he was different from her and she was different from him. But it, what they had in common was they were all a-holes <laughs> in one way or another. Right. I couldn't stand yeah. it. I felt I felt repressed i felt like i wasn't allowed to express myself yeah but what you're doing is going into companies and saying the complete opposite no what you've got to do is let people express themselves you've got to let people play to their strengths right yes, yes. tell us more about that yeah exactly right so that so that's exactly my understanding of leadership um which is leadership really is being able to, you know, we all have our annual appraisals. You know, if you're in a large organization, that's what you have. And um, one of the things we know about annual appraisals is that they have um, a massive impact on people's desire to be in work, their sense of meaning that they have, their productivity immediately afterwards. I mean, I know, you know, years where I've had 
a bad appraisal and by bad i don't necessarily mean that i've done anything wrong i mean i just wasn't very encouraged by it you can almost mm. see the l drop in my productivity for the next yeah. couple of weeks and it's like just think why am i here should i be somebody yeah. else what's going on and that's because generally speaking as human beings we have a negativity bias so we view things will be improved by me finding the problem and trying to solve it um and and actually that's good in lo there's lots of situations in which that's exactly how we should deal with them but there's many situations in which it doesn't really work, particularly if we're thinking psychologically or motivationally. So mm. short term, you know, you cracking the whip to get something out the door might work. You know, that that that's something to just increase productivity periodically, temporarily. But if you want long term teams that really perform and get things done mm. and really, really sort of um perform and enjoy what they do and find meaning in their work, you have to harness their strength. So you have to end up being able to have not just the conversation that says what's wrong with you and let's go into that in loads and loads of depth, but also let's have a conversation about what things have been like when you've done really, really well lately. Mm -hmm. So th this lies behind something called the positive appraisal movement. And the positive appraisal movement is basically what we should be doing with people is talking about the time they did best in their job this year. Right. And really, really investing in that and talking about it and then thinking, and how do we get you doing more of that in the coming year? Like, that's really the best way to get the best out of people where they're happy, they're more productive, they they do what's needed. Um, that, that's really the best way to, to, to make that happen. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because when, when we're in those positive frames of mind, um, we're more creative, you know, our frontal lobes are fully working, we can bring all of what we are um, to a situation, we tend to be much more loyal um, to, to whatever organisation we're working in, if we're in that, that kind of state. Yeah. Um, and you can even apply this to, to ourselves individually as well. So if you think about the, you know, if you find yourself getting a little bit depressed and you start going, why am I so depressed? Then what happens is you enter a problem solving mode. Mm -hmm. And before you know, it, you've accessed all your memories of all the times you were depressed. And now you've got depression times 10 because you're now mm -hmm. carrying the weight of all that. Whereas if you were more likely to ask the question, I'm feeling a bit down at the moment. What, what can I do to pick myself up a little bit? You know, when mm -hmm. I've been like this and I've managed to just gently rise myself out of it what did i do um and that's where things like mindfulness are really really helpful because mindfulness mm. is kind of about actually let's let's not judge this state let's just look at it and be curious about mm. it and be interested bring some compassion to it and see what we could do next um mm. and so in a sense I, i'm doing with organizations i think what a lot of people are sort of learning to do for themselves yeah um, but i'd like to see that happen on a much more sort of social corporate level yeah, because uh, you kindly sent me a leaflet to have a look at, which I've read, uh, The Strengths of a Leader, Strength-Based Workbook for Senior Leaders. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And I think uh, what's really interesting is that it's supported by all these papers, these studies that have been yeah. done internationally. And I think that's the other thing. Well, you're, there you are based in Lincoln, but it seems like there's been an awful lot going on in Germany and Switzerland and uh, Holland particularly those kind of North European yeah. countries. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, and um, I think the thing is, uh, I mean, there's so many things in there I could bring up. We're more <laughs> too limited on time, really. I have to get you back on the show. But it's uh, something uh, here I was just noticing about um, flourishing in the workplace using your signature strengths in a new way every day now you mentioned something about that but obviously in the workplace 
because a lot of people think, well, I'm stuck on a production line. I'm doing the same thing every day. How can I use my strengths in a new way every day? But that's down to the management, isn't it? To create opportunities for people to not just feel like they're stuck on the production line every day. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, when you look at some of the studies that I cite and some of the work I do, one of the things that comes across really clearly is that is that this isn't just about, you know, the worker drones at the bottom needing to be happy. So I I sometimes don't like this idea of the happy workplace because sometimes and I've been in this situation where a CEO goes, come in and make my people happier. Um, mm. And my response is, actually, I'd like to challenge you first into if your people are unhappy, yeah, yeah. how are you leading in a way that yeah. makes them as unhappy as they are? Don't yeah. don't try and compensate down here somewhere. And, and what all that research really says is it says that, that that you have to have a change of mindset in the people who set the culture of the organization. Yeah. So yeah. if the managing director and the, the financial director and those kind of people aren't in the habit of spotting strengths, it doesn't matter mm. how much I train the people on the production line or whatever it's not Mm. going to make that much difference unless it's rippling through the whole organization um in that way um and that's just been found over and over and over and over again and that that influences very much how i engage with people um Mm. i had a very high high flying um coo approach me um a few weeks back and um he, he was saying i've got this strange problem my people have lost their productivity and things like that but, but I'm straight back at him in terms of um, how willing are you to be challenged in the way that you lead? Because that's where yeah. I'd like to begin. And if we don't start there, it's it's not, I can tell you now, it's not going to work. You'll get something that, you know, hangs around for maybe six to 18 months, but doesn't yeah. make any difference. So these are changes that need to be top down more than bottom up in many ways. I mean, it's I, basically I think, it's yeah. the head of the snake that needs to be addressed first. So, so they need to be both. But, but what, what I'm against is I'm against the idea of the leader abstracting him or herself out of the organization mm. and pointing at it as if it's nothing to do with them. And I'm yeah, saying yeah. You, you, are a, you are an active participant. You're possibly the most powerful contributor to the culture of your organization. Yeah. And so I want to challenge you first. Yeah. Um, in, in amongst all the stuff I've been reading, um, there are a few bits of jargon if you like that come up one of which is perma e-r-m-a sometimes with an h on the end that's right right, yeah could you explain to the listeners what though that stands for basically so so perma actually um when martin seligman who i mentioned earlier had done all his work on character strengths with with his team um they started to ask the question how do character strengths kind of break down into different ingredients of well-being mm-hmm. um and to begin with there were three well-being ingredients which martin Seligman called authentic happiness theory and then later on it was extended into five or maybe six um mm-hmm. which which spell the word word perma and uh perma stands for positive emotions um engagement meaning positive relationships achievement and then the H is health. Sometimes it's vitality, but it's basically right. health. Um, and these are viewed as the five or six pathways into well-being that basically if we attend to those kind of things, or, or let, let's say, um, you know, we're feeling quite, you know, we're, we're feeling quite happy, um, but actually we haven't achieved very much recently. We know that yeah. if we don't pay attention to that sort of achievement mastery side of things, yeah. things might fall apart. So it's basically about creating what are the different pillars that make well-being work, and that that spells the word perma. Right. Yeah. Um, 
and, and this it's it's fascinating stuff. Goodness me, um, I think um, that it's time to talk a little bit about what you would call mindfulness based strengths practice. Mm. Another another bit of acronym MBSP there, <laughs> uh, and and tell us how that relates to what we've been talking about. Yeah, Roger. we 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 love our letters in psychology. I have to say that. That's <laughs> I've noticed as, as a lay person coming to this subject in the last year or two, it's like yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so mindfulness-based strengths practice um, combines the practice of mindfulness with the character strengths that we've been talking about. Right. Um, and um, so so what I and some of my colleagues at the University of Lincoln and across the world, actually, is various people working on it mm. have been doing is we we've been researching um, an eight-session program that that step by step teaches how character strengths, hey, what's best in us. And the practice of mindfulness can come together to improve well-being in various different ways. Uh, and to cut a very long story short, we basically do it in two ways. So one is you can be mindful of your character strengths, which means mm -hmm. that you're bringing mindfulness and you're seeing, oh, there's my curiosity. Let's use that in the right way. There's my kindness. Mm -hmm. let's, let's use that well. Mm -hmm. so, so you can have mindful strengths use or you can flip it around and you can bring your character strengths to mindful practice. Um, so if you've done a bit of mindfulness, you know, you can be you can bring compassionate uh, mindedness. You can be uh, fill, filled with humor or joy while being mindful. Mm. You can um, use your wisdom to develop your mindfulness. Mm. And so it's basically looking at it in those two ways. Um, right. And, and the research we've been doing uh, on that program effectively really comes out with a very, very, very reliable result that just comes out over and over and over again that pretty much everybody we've put through that program in comparison to controls who haven't done the program and have perhaps done other things instead always come out reporting what we would call higher self-efficacy and wow. self-efficacy is basically that sense of um i know i have something co to contribute when something difficult comes my way i'm ready to deal with it i feel yeah. like i have lots of options in terms of how i'm going to deal with the, the challenges that life throws my way um, so it's quite unique as a mindfulness program in terms of yeah, really yeah. driving self-efficacy and then the self-efficacy drives um, well-being from there. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's a really interesting kind of system that's building up here. I'm, I'm building a picture of it and I'm sure the listeners are kind of getting the vibe now. I think it's time actually to kind of go back to what we said we were going to talk a bit more about earlier, which is positive psychology, hmm. uh, which is something I had. I've only come across relatively recently, actually. I mean, I threw myself into, well, you know, knowing your colleague Ava and stuff, who's a brilliant, brilliant woman and done, does amazing stuff. I want to get her to talk about conversational analysis, but that's a whole other yeah, subject. That right? Would be great. But um, positive psychology is something that differs from standard traditional psychology isn't it and i've got i've actually got a little bit of a, a, a quotation here uh, the questions that positive psychology aims to answer are what characteristics do people with high levels of happiness possess and what qualities do people who manage their troubles effectively have 
In other words, what strengths do these people possess? These questions do not fit the disease model. These questions force us to consider the bigger question of what's right with people. If we learn what differentiates happy and resilient people from unhappy and unresilient people, then we can use this knowledge to increase happiness and boost the resilience of others. And I think that's pretty a pretty critical definition, isn't it? Because that really throws into sharp uh, contrast with traditional psychology that, you know, where what we think of as, you know, we go to a psychotherapist because I've got a problem. There's something yeah. wrong with me, you know, and it made me realize, you know, for a long time in my life, I had a kind of demon sitting on my shoulder telling me I was crap at everything. And so my picture of the kind of therapy I would need was, oh, yes, there's something wrong with you, Mr. Hyde. Let's dissect you, <laughs> cut that piece off and put you back together again. Positive psychology takes a very different approach. So can you tell us something about that? Yeah. See, I mean, perhaps one of the ways of sort of summarizing would be that some some piece of research would talk about the difference between what they would call compensation and capitalization. So they would say the compensation is the demon on your shoulder. I've got this sort of negative deficit um, and somehow we need to build that up in some way. But the problem with a compensation approach is you don't once you've got back to zero, that's the end, you know. Okay, I'm <laughs> yeah. now um, normal. You know what? What am I now? <laughs> yeah. Where, whereas the capitalization model really says, "What's good in you already?" So even in people who are depressed or suffer from personality disorders or whatever, you know, I I never mm. saw a client in clinical psychology where there wasn't something wonderful about them somewhere. They mm. were they were creative or they were persistent. I think of the the depressed uh, client I had who tiled his bathroom one tile every day over six oh, wow. weeks because that was all he coped with before he collapsed into bed but by the end of six weeks had the most beautiful bathroom and his persistence yeah. was astonishing yeah. and, and that would that would be called the capitalization model which is let's not just think about what's wrong with you let's also think about what's right on you and really build on that really build on those good things and, and that's what character strengths comes from um mm. do, do i have a moment to say about how i discovered that in trauma because yes please like, do please go ahead because one of the reasons I ended up in positive psychology, because I, I was talking about the work I did in trauma as a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. And then gradually what I started to notice working in a trauma service is that there were a handful of people, maybe about 20 percent of people or so, who after the trauma would not just say, yes, I've got back to normal. They would mm -hmm. say, my life is so much better now. I'm more compassionate. I'm braver. I've got greater yeah. integrity. Um, I, I have more wisdom in life. And I got really curious about that and started going, what is going on here? And then I discovered there was a whole field dedicated to it called post-traumatic growth. And a lot of my interest in positive psychology came out of that realization was, hang on a sec, this is not just the case of getting people back to where they were before. Some people, as a result of going through tough stuff, end up with a far better life because it gives them a moment to reflect, a moment to think, and their strength develop as a result. Yeah, uh, that's an absolute reflection of my journey over the mm. last couple of years, uh, having been through cancer, which is like, whoa. And uh, that mo I think that's that is one of those big wake up calls in life where you think I might die. I mean, we're all going to die, but, you know, <laughs> sooner than planned. And then having, uh, you know, a bit of a mental breakdown, basically, and having that choice now I, I i consider myself lucky that i think there was something innate within myself whether it's partly on on that list of stuff curiosity of learning all that kind of stuff where 
where can I find out stuff that's going to help me? Yeah. And, you know, I started buying books, lots and lots of books, and was lucky friends like Ava, you know, who works in psychology, her sister is also brilliant. And I, with the help of other people, managed to put myself back together to the point where now, and this is, chimes exactly with what you're saying, mm. I would say objectively, not just subjectively, objectively, I'm a better person than mm. I was, than I was a couple of years ago. I have found the opportunity to grow as a person i found more i found more compassion i've discovered mindfulness and 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 and, and there's so many, my life is so much richer now than it was a couple of years ago and this is what kind of got me interested in um uh, also i'm very lucky to have a brilliant therapist who's as well as doing the kind of fixing stuff as part of her regime has kind of made sure that I understand my own strengths and she's been really encouraging me to write. I think you're ready now to go out and kind of shine your light, you know? And so that all, once I started, Oh, positive psychology, that's interesting. And what you've got here, it all starts to click into place that yes, exactly what you say. It's all very well. Someone kind of fixing you and bringing you back to zero, but then what? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what the positive psychology and the character strengths starts building. Okay, that's a foundation, you could say, but what you're doing builds on those foundation and adds the walls and windows and so on and so mm. forth, right? Yeah, that, that's right. And I, the thing I often found when I was working in clinical practice is that nobody's motivated to get back to zero. You know, mm. so if you spend your whole time anxiously worrying about things, a life where you, you know, what am I going to do with the time when I'm not anxiously worrying about things when I stop, you know, what, <laughs> what's left of me, you know, once yeah, I stop yeah, yeah. doing that. Um, and so, um, yeah, yeah, and so that that's for me where character strength started to come in. And um, I, I think the thing for me was beginning to notice that in people, even when they were at rock bottom. So mm. it, it's inappropriate to come straight in and go, oh, wow, you know, look at what's yeah, great yeah. in you because people when they're in pain that's not the place to begin yeah. but nevertheless I always had this background awareness of I can see something pretty magnificent in you that I'm really committed yeah. to and when the the moment is right we'll reflect on that yeah uh, it's interesting because going back to the start of the show where you mentioned you worked with kind of road accident victims and PTSD victims and the military and of course I think some of the most striking examples I've seen in my experience are in the military, you know, where these, you get these guys, they've lost their legs in Afghanistan. And the next thing you know, they're winning gold medals at the Invictus games and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. The other thing is uh, about, you know, that zero point. I don't want to go back to zero because that's when the problem started, right? I want to kind of build in a buffer. Thank you very much indeed. So I'm more, resilient you know there's a wonderful guy called rick hansen who's written a, a brilliant book called resilient and i think a lot of that is about that it's like you know you're our, our base level as it were it's not useful anymore because that's where the problem started yeah. we need yeah. to climb up above the base and move to you know base camp on everest at least towards the summit so that at least there's a bit we can slide down but not hit the bottom yeah. you know yeah. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, traditionally isn't really understood, is it? I think that because we all think of Freud or whoever, you know, and that kind of lying on the couch and being told this and that about, you know, oh, it was your, it was your mother's fault or whatever. <laughs> so what you're you're creating in a sense a new paradigm with what you're doing, aren't you? 
you're creating yeah. a new paradigm for psychology. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't claim to have created it, but I'm certainly joining in it and, and contributing yeah. to it. And um, I mean, Rick Hansen is a great example because he's one of the, you know, his famous quote, as I'm sure you know, is is that our, our minds are like uh, Velcro for the negative and Teflon yes. for the positive. Yeah. And one of the things he's pointing out by saying that is he's pointing out the negativity bias we have, yeah. which is when I, I mean, you you kind of exemplified it right at the beginning where you were saying, you know, it almost feels like boasting to start saying that I'm honest and I'm kind <laughs> and curious yeah. and all these kind of things. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I think if if there's an enemy of the kind of work I do, it's our natural tendency to think that goodness is nothing and the negativity yeah. is where all the action is. And I think that's yeah. why we keep defaulting back to that sort of, Freudian view of the world which really is sort of we're dirty and rotten to the core like that's kind yeah. of his view yeah of it. yeah yeah um, it was I, I, there was something interesting I read uh oh there's I think it was in uh, there's a woman called Tara Brack who wrote yeah. a book called Radical Acceptance and various other things and uh was talking about spirituality and one of the one of the problems I mean I know you're you're a follower of the Christian faith but one of the problems of the Christian faith can be seen that from the word go we're told there's something wrong with us. We've committed yeah. sin. We're all bad, right? So you're starting off from kind of a negativity bias point, which can be hard to overcome. Yeah. But what that points out is that these things can be have cultural associations, can't That's they, right. Roger? Yeah. That that in in cultures with different faiths, so Buddhist faith or whatever, that you're not you're not necessarily starting from minus one already, yeah. you know, <laughs> which is something that's you know that you know. I I mean I I'm open to people saying a little bit about their faith as Michael did uh, last time round. So, but you are you know you speak open and you've written a book about you know uh, I can't having a chat with God. I can't remember what the time title is now roger yeah. sounds like a good that'll do <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a good one <laughs> but it's quite interesting isn't it that 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 these uh negativity biases do have cultural yeah. associations well this this is the really interesting thing is so when you think about that sort of real obsession with sin really that it that is a it, mm. it's a certain kind of christianity that really emphasizes that um, but but, I, but it's a particular hermeneutic. It's like people have read the Bible and they all all the negative bits seemed real. But yeah. like all, all the stuff that says how high, wide, deep, broad is the love of God. The idea that that love. Mm. So my experience of Christianity really is that um, is an experience of being held in a deeply unconditional, absolutely unfathomable love that that is that that's mm. the reality uh, behind everything. Um, and when you encounter that, your sin is just obvious. Yeah, of course I fall short of that. Yeah, I don't get mm. anywhere near being yeah. like that myself. But that's not the bit I'm obsessed with. The bit I'm obsessed with is, but there's this absolutely wonderful love on mm. offer. Um, I, and I, I mean, I've dialogued with quite a few Buddhists on this about, you know, their their sense of what ultimate reality is and what they connect to too. And mm. um, there's some real interesting parallels. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's it's sad sometimes when sin sin becomes the real thing. When yes. actually, you know, it's the, the divine is supposed to be the real thing, and sin is just the parasitic thing we have to put up with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even as someone who's, uh, as I say, I'm not, I don't follow any form of religion or anything of that kind. But I, find, I there's uh, some interesting stuff stuff comes out. I mean, I uh, I read uh, you you were interviewed by uh, another blog, uh, Wonder Days or something like that. I can't remember. The yeah, topic. words on Wonder. Words on wonder. And where I really chime with you is a sense of awe. Yeah. 
you know, uh, and it came out in my questionnaire, didn't it? Because I'm a designer, because I'm artistic, you know, and I've uh, I've always, you know, I'm the guy who'll stand there for ages, sucker, looking at a sunset going down, or mountains, or or listening to a piece of music that just transports me. And I think that's one of those things where uh, I'm aware of the in a vast sense and the word vast used advisedly mm. of the magic of just being alive there's a guy uh, at sussex university called anil seth who's doing research into consciousness and stuff and that's another area where it's like wow that is extraordinary isn't it the fact that we realize we are alive that we mm. are experiencing stuff whereas that bush probably isn't you know whereas an octopus might be experiencing something but very alien to ours because he might have consciousness in each of his tentacles you know this is like <laughs> wow okay this is moving off into star trek territory but i think that's where the positive psychology um interests me is that it can emphasize our you know we are what we pay attention to right and if all we pay attention to is negative stuff, we're going to have a hard time. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that for much of my life, oh, I was probably spending too much time attending to the negative, fearing that there was that tiger hiding in the bushes, you know, to yeah. use that kind of analogy. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, there's no tiger. <laughs> and most, most of the time, there's no tiger. So you might as well actually admire the bushes, yeah. you know, rather than worry about whether there's a tiger in them. Yeah. So this for you, I think, the impression I get, Roger, is that this research you're doing, this work you're doing, is tying in with your own character strengths, right? Yes. That you are finding fulfillment in what you're doing, what you're learning, what you're teaching. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, so that, that's absolutely right. And, and I think, I guess the word I would use to describe that would just be vocation. And I think you can use... Mm the sense of vocation in, in a spiritual sense, but I think you can use it just in a social secular sense as well. Mm. It, it, and for me, what it means is that my following of character strengths, if you like, so sort of using them, I'm kind of looking at them theologically. I, I sort of have my own meditation practice that, you know, mm. check me out for 20 minutes this morning. I will have been doing something like mm. that. Um, and therefore for me, it's the kind of thing where it, it, I, I embody what I'm researching. So I, I love the stats and I love the research and that's mm. great. I love communicating it to other people, but I think mm. fundamentally for it to have some kind of authenticity, it has to kind of be part of you as well. Um, yeah. And and I think that is true. And so I guess I, I would define vocation as opposed to just having a job or having a career. So a job is I do it, I take the money, career is I do it and I want to climb the ladder. Whereas mm. vocation is somehow this is really linked to my contribution to the world who i am yeah. and what i want to give to the people around me so yeah so definitely you're picking that up spot on it's sort of that that spirituality really is that sort of unified whole of who you are uh, and therefore mm. what you want to give to the world around yeah. you because uh as kind of heading towards the end here it's what's interesting is uh you clearly don't suffer from imposter syndrome. I was talking to a lovely lady called Claire Yosef a couple of episodes ago about imposter syndrome. And do you feel that is because you, what you're doing is so aligned with who you are? Yeah, th th that's, that's a really, really, such a brilliant question, Henry, because I don't suffer from imposter syndrome. And, and um, 
but but I did at one point and you know there were times in my life where I really felt I did and I, mm. and I don't know what happened to change it but all I know is that I came up with a sort of the way I articulated it to myself was that maturity was having nothing left to prove but loads left to learn yeah. And I think my imposter disappeared at the point where I knew it was okay not to know, you know, and I knew it was okay yeah. to be uncertain and who I am as an investigator and I'm checking things out and I'm finding, and therefore I don't need to pretend that I know things that I don't yeah. equally. I also don't have to pretend that I don't know things that I'm pretty certain to know. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's fine. You know, that, that's the yeah. way it is. Um, so, and I think some of my imposter syndrome disappeared because basically what I did over the last really six seven years was decide to put myself in every room that intimidated me so any audience where I wasn't sure if character strengths would be welcome I just knocked mm. on the door and said could I come and talk to you for half an hour or whatever and I think when you've done that enough times um you, you get a good sense of who you are and where you're at and what works yeah. and what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are and yeah. you you don't have to pretend anymore so so I, I feel like narcissism is it is the opposite of authenticity so in narcissism we mm. fall in love with an image of ourselves that we constantly have mm. to defend and have to make mm. sure it's there and then sometimes we find ourselves in organizational life where organizations require us to pretend as to pretend that we're something we're not um yeah. whereas i i feel somehow i've managed to escape some of that um over the last few years which is it's a lovely settled place to be and yeah. it's also the place where you realize that the safest place to be ironically is the most vulnerable place to be so this is just where I am. This is how I feel right now. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm done. It's completely vulnerable, but realize it's kind of, it's rock bottom, really. You know, you can't, yeah. you, you can't go anywhere. So going yeah. right back to your earlier comments about honesty, that's been my learning too, really, over the last few years, is that I don't have anything else other than my own authenticity. All I can say is, this is how I see it. You know, I could be wrong, yeah. could have missed it, you know, could, could be expressing it badly. But all I can say is this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is what I've done. That's yeah. it. You know, there's nothing else. Absolutely with you there, Roger, which is why I'm doing this podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand, it's as scary as hell. Yeah. But it's like, do you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. That's right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Roger. It's been fascinating. We could easily have filled another hour. I'm absolutely certain. <laughs> There's so much ground that could be covered, but I think I, I'm really uh, pleased and grateful that you've managed to kind of keep everything kind of within a nutshell. And I'll give the links to people to obviously go and explore more themselves. Positive psychology as a subject in itself is now a vast and growing thing. Uh, and there's so much else to discover, but they'll have to be in another program. Perhaps you'll come back on and talk about something else. I'd, I'd absolutely love to, Henry. Yeah, if, 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 if you uh, want to hear more or there's other things to talk about, I'd love to. Fantastic. Roger, thank you so much for coming on the show. You My pleasure. Care. Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well.
This is Henry, and welcome to Relaxation on the Beach, number eight. Today, we're going to be talking about forgiveness. So first of all, get yourself in that nice, comfortable position. Sitting, lying down, or standing up with your eyes closed or slightly open, whichever you prefer. Make sure that you relax your shoulders. And we're going to start, as usual, with a couple of nice deep breaths. In for four, holding for four, and then out for eight. Okay, you ready? And breathing in, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and in, two, three, four, and hold, two, to forgive faults and others and releasing resentment. In fact, that word resentment has Latin roots and it literally means to feel again. And we all have to deal with resentment, holding on to harm that we've suffered, that's been caused in the past. And it can be a painful experience. And the trouble is, when you hold on to resentment like that, you do, you feel the pain over and over, repeatedly. Sometimes these resentments may feel like they offer some kind of security from future harm. But actually, with forgiveness, you can free up space in your heart to allow love and care and compassion to take root. And the practice of forgiveness will help you let go of these painful experiences and offer freedom to your own mind and heart. So now you're feeling comfortable and relaxed. Just invite gentleness 
and compassion into your body. Notice if you've got any areas of discomfort or tension and just gently soften the areas around them, applying a calm and soothing balm. So now, bring to mind somebody that you're feeling any kind of resentment towards or feeling distressed about. If you're new to this kind of thing, you don't necessarily want to choose the strongest source of resentment. So, if you feel like it, just start with something smaller, a minor dispute with someone, or a minor irritation. But now I want you to notice the harm that you felt was caused. And be open. Think about why you feel resentful towards that person. But now I want you to connect with the intention of cultivating an open and loving heart. There may be resistance, and if there is resistance, just notice that it's there. But don't push it away. It takes time to allow your heart to reopen in this way, so don't force anything. Take your time. I want you to begin by offering words of forgiveness, connecting with those words, feeling those words as much as you're able. So say a phrase slowly in your head, finding an easy rhythm, and it might be helpful to Say a phrase with each exhale or with every other exhale. For example, I forgive you. Or perhaps I forgive you as much as I'm able to in this moment. Or may I let this pain free itself from my heart. So try that. Try saying or thinking to yourself, with that person in mind, I forgive you. I forgive you as much as I'm able to in this moment. And may I let this pain release itself from my heart and drift away. Let me leave you with that for a couple of minutes.
And now, with total honesty and self-compassion, turn towards yourself, recognizing that you too have caused harm or pain to others. You don't need to get wrapped up in stories about the harm you may have caused. But just recognize that you have actually caused difficulties for others, whether you intended to or not. None of us is perfect. So now, call to mind a specific person who you realize that you have hurt. And now, ask forgiveness from that person using phrases like I ask for forgiveness for any harm that I've caused you. May you find room in your heart to forgive me. May we forgive one another. Again, I ask for forgiveness for any harm that I've caused you. May you find room in your heart to forgive me. May we forgive one another. So again, let me leave you for a couple of minutes to ask forgiveness of this person in your own way. So now, feeling calmer and cleansed and released from the burden of carrying grudges or 
feeling the burden of needing forgiveness from someone else. Let's take a couple of deep breaths. As usual, breathing in, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And now breathe gently and easily. Bring yourself back to the room. Maybe have a bit of a stretch. Slowly open your eyes. And now you can return to your day. Thank you for spending your time with me. Until next time, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing via your normal podcast player such as Apple, Google, Spotify or Amazon. You can also support the show directly via our coffee page at ko-fi.com slash inside your head, all one word. That's coffee.com slash inside your head where you can make donations in multiples of just £3, the equivalent of a cup of coffee. All donations are gratefully received and go directly to the production costs of the show. Thank you.